Hope you all had a great week. I'm sure folks will be making their way in as we begin. I often find if you pray, people show up, so that's what we're going to do. Um, the prayer for this morning, if you've got your little handbook, it's on page nine. This is one of my favorite colics in the prayer book. Um, it's, a, it's a collect, a prayer, that we would pray on the eighth Sunday after Epiphany. That's the season that happens after Christmas. And because that is a season, because Easter falls on a different day every year, you know, kind of depending on the, where the first full moon is, this whole calculation. But sometimes Epiphany is, you know, this long, six Sundays. Sometimes it's eight Sundays. So oftentimes you don't get to hear this collect. It happened on the eighth Sunday of Epiphany, but sometimes we don't hear it because Epiphany is not very long because of where Easter falls. But it's one of my favorites. And it's a prayer that's a, it's a prayer uh, to the Father. And um, it, it re- actually is a really uh, applicable for Jeff's sermon uh, today, this morning that he gave, that talks about um, anxiety. And this is a prayer that talks about anxiety. And I, I know um, many of us suffer from anxiety. So anyway, um, let's begin with this prayer. Let's pray. O most loving Father, who willest us to give thanks for all things, to dread nothing but the loss of thee, and to cast all our care on thee who carest for us, preserve us from faithless fears and worldly anxieties, and grant that no clouds of this mortal life may hide from us the light of that love which is immortal and which thou hast manifested unto us in thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, again, welcome back. Hope you all had a great week. We have finished, my friends, the first major section of our time together. Foundations is divided up into into three main sections, Christian beginnings, Christian beliefs, Christian behavior. And in that first section of Christian beginnings, we looked at three questions along the way. We talked about, um, well, these are, let me just say, three questions that on the face of it seem obvious, like they would have an obvious answer. But as we talked about, there's actually much more to it when you dig below the surface, how to become a Christian, how to be sure you are a Christian, how to grow as a Christian. Today, we're going to move now into this second major section, Christian beliefs, um, our belief in God the Father. That is, what, what do we know to be true about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? And today, we'll just begin that section of um, what we know to be true about God the Father. We're going to actually do some sort of big picture work um, before we zoom into the Father. And then next week, we'll really focus on the Father um, himself. We'll, we'll start that today but really dig in next week in terms of God the Father. Let me ask you all a question. Let's say you're on the side of the road and, um, I don't know, maybe it's after church and you say a a tourist make a beeline for you and uh, you can tell this person's just focused in on you, think, oh my goodness, what what, what does this person want? And they come up to you and they say, hey, I I saw you coming out of that church there. I'm I'm sure you must be a Christian. Um, I don't know anything about your God, Can you tell me about your God? Could you give me a resource that would help me learn about what your God is like? So what is the most comprehensive book we could give them? The Bible, of course, which obviously is technically a collection of books, but yes, the book of the Bible. So maybe we have a spare Bible. Maybe maybe you brought it with you to church and you say, look, you can have my Bible. And the person says, well, 
actually, I'm waiting for my Uber. I've only got about 10 minutes. Could you give me like the Reader's Digest version? Could you, could you just you know, sort of distill it for me? What could we hand them? Short, sweet, to tell them about who our God is, what we know to be true about God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. What could we hand them? What's it? The creeds, very good, Sarah, right on. Exactly, we could hand them uh, the creeds, one of the creeds. The word creed, our English word, comes from the Latin credo, which literally means, I believe. A creed is a statement about what we believe to be true, what we know to be true about God. Now, in our tradition, we use two of the creeds, uh, traditional creeds in worship. Can anyone name them for me? Now, Sarah, you got to sit on your hands. You answered the last question. Anybody else know the name of the two creeds? The Nicene and the Apostles' Creed. Chase. Yes, thank you. Um, Yes, the Nicene and the Apostles' Creeds. And we're going to begin by having a little bit of an orientation of the creeds this morning. The vast majority of Christians around the world would acknowledge that the creeds are a faithful summary of what we believe to be true about God vast majority of Christians. There's a handful of Christians who are a little uncomfortable with using the creeds, but the majority of us um, would say, yes, this is a basic statement of our faith. But let's have a little orientation of these creeds that we use every Sunday. Turn with me if you've got your foundations field guide, and if you don't, we've got extras out there. Feel free to grab one if if you want to to get one. Um, We're gonna take a look at the creeds themselves. In the back of the foundation's field guide, I've um, photocopied some of some select pages of the Book of Common Prayer. And if you get back there, find page 66. That's where that section begins. There on page 66, we see the Apostles' Creed. Then if you flip the page over, you are magically transported to page 326. And if you look carefully, you notice that the Nicene Creed begins on page 326. And what's the first word there that it begins with? You all found it? What's it? We, okay, yes. But then if you look over here on page 327, you see it begins again, but this time with the, with the pronoun I. Now, both of these are the Nicene Creed. The first is simply worded from the standpoint of the church. This is what we Christians, and not just we here at St. Philip's, but Christians all over the world. And not only that, but Christians back through the centuries. So we, the church, we, the people of God, this is what we believe. The second form of the creed simply emphasizes that I, I believe this. And both are important, and so we've included both in here. But essentially, it's the same It's just either from the standpoint of us as a community or me as an individual Christian, okay? Now, flip back and forth, just at a bird's eye view, just without even reading the words themselves, what what major difference do you see between the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed? What's that? Rick, thank you. Yes, length. The Apostles' Creed is much shorter than the Nicene Creed. Um, And we'll talk about why that is in a moment. But the Apostles' Creed is much shorter. That's how they're different. Now, they are different, but they are also similar in that they are divided up into the same number of sections. How many sections are they divided up into? 
three, yes, and it might be a little bit easier to see up here on the screen, one, two, three. And those three sections correspond to our belief in what? What do those correspond to? Yeah, the Trinity, our belief, what we know to be true about God the Father, what do we know to be true about God the Son, what do, you, what do we know to be true about God the Holy Spirit? So that's just the basic structure of the creeds. The Apostles' Creed is named as such, not because it was written by the Apostles, but because it is a, a succinct summary of the faith of the Apostles. This is what the Apostles taught. And the Nicene Creed is named for the Council of Nicaea that met in 325 that adopted an earlier version of this creed. It was not until several decades later, 385, I believe it was, or 381, excuse me, when um, a second council at Nicaea met and adopted essentially the form of the creed that we have here today. Now, as I said, the Nicene Creed is longer, and that's because it seeks to answer questions that the Apostles' Creed doesn't seek to answer. The Nicene Creed wanted to flesh out what is the relationship between God the Son to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Like, how are we supposed to understand that relationship? So the Nicene Creed begins to, to talk about that because the church was getting questions. And in fact, there were beginning to be disagreements about what is the relationship. And we're gonna talk more about that in a minute, um, but that's why the Nicene Creed is longer. Now, I wanna spend a moment talking just a little bit about the nature of faith. We talked about faith last week and, and what it means to have faith. We talked about how a biblical faith ultimately is faith in a person. It's not blind faith. It's not faith believing in something I'm not sure is going to be true. Like, I hope I'm going to have steak for dinner tonight, even though I'm pretty sure I won't have steak for dinner. I hope I have faith. I have No, it's not that kind of faith. Faith, Christian faith, biblical faith is trust in a person, the person of Jesus Christ, the person of God. That's what biblical faith is. Now, the creeds, though, they, they assume the existence of God. In other words, they don't make any kind of case for this is why we should believe in God. They begin at the standpoint from because we believe in God, this is what God is like. Okay? So I want to take a step back because that, that's, that's what we're going to be, as we talk about the creeds, we're going to, to have assumed the existence of God. But I want to say here at the front end, that it is true that we as Christians, we accept uh, the existence of God on the basis of faith, not proof. In other words, it's not because we've worked out some sort of rational proof, therefore God. It, it does call for trust. Trust in a person. Trust that he is there. Trust that he is good. Now, this does not mean that our faith is unreasonable or in, uh, irrational or anti-intellectual. In fact, we talked last week about how the Bible um, commands us to grow in knowledge. We, God has given us brains. We're supposed to use them. We're supposed to have them in gear. We're supposed to engage them. But there is an element of faith in terms of accepting the existence of God. No question about it. However, it is important in our current culture to understand that atheism is also equally a leap of faith. There is no open or shut proof that I could lay out that says at the end of the proof, therefore there is no God or therefore there is a God. Both involve to some degree a faith, not a proof. And I point that out because oftentimes um, 
in the world, the unbelieving world will try to bully us into believing that somehow because we believe in God, we are somehow less intellectual, like our brains are out of gear. We've put it in neutral. And that's not the case at all. So the existence of God is not a matter of proof, nor is it a matter of scientific experiment. Now, I'm going to talk next week a little more about the relationship between faith and science, but this is a big, this is a big topic um, in our current day culture, because in our current culture, uh, science has been, which is incredibly important, but has been elevated to an almost, um, well, scientists have become almost the new priests, as it were. And I say that as a person who has a great love for science. My background is in physics, so I continue to keep up in science. I have a love for science. Um, I spent many long hours in a windowless basement running experiments, so I have a great respect and love for science itself. And again, we're going to talk more about that next week. But my point here today is, is to say that there's no test tube or beaker or mass spectrometer or any instrument of science that I can use to prove the existence of God. Now, there are scientists out there who will use scientific types of terms and all of a sudden, what they're doing is not talking science. They're actually talking philosophy. And they'll say, science, therefore, there is no God. But that's baloney. And again, we'll talk about that more next week. My point here, though, is to say, yes, there is an element of faith in our belief in the existence of God. And the creeds begin having already, um, with that already having been established. Yes, we believe that there is a God. Once you acknowledge the existence of God, once you come to the place where you say, yes, I believe there is a God, then the next logical question is, well, what is this God like? What is his personality? What is his nature? What does he expect of me? And before we talk about the individual members of the Trinity, who again are, who are the members of the Trinity? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. Holy Ghost is sort of a more old-fashioned term, but holy, same thing, Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want you all to get a little bit acquainted with the, the Trinity itself. This is a, 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 um, an ancient symbol for the Trinity. As we talked about earlier, the Apostles and the Nicene Creeds are both divided into three paragraphs because we believe in a triune God. Now, that word trinity is actually the contraction of two words, tri and unity. The trinity is perhaps the greatest mystery of the Christian faith. Perhaps next only to the cross, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. Turn with me in your field guide to page 867, near the end. This, again, is a photocopy from the back of the Book of Common Prayer, where if you were to turn to page 867, you would find the Articles of Religion. Now, if the Bible is the most comprehensive statement for what we know to be true about God, and if the creeds are like the Reader's Digest, then the 39 articles are sort of somewhere in between. Not as long as the Bible, not as short as the creeds, somewhere in between. These 39 articles of religion are a statement of what we as Anglican Christians believe to be true about God. And, and what you would find when you read these is a great deal of overlap with, um, with all Protestant churches. But the very first article 
is of what? What does it say there, down there at the bottom? Article one. Yeah, y'all have younger eyes than I do. I can't read it, but y'all can. Of faith in the Holy Trinity. The very first thing that we want to say about what we know to be true about God is that God is Trinitarian. Well, let's read this. Now, you need to understand this is written in Elizabethan English. So some of the wording is a little bit, um, a little bit arcane. So I'm going to, to explain what these words mean. But let's, let's read this first article. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions. Let me pause there. Passions here meaning not that God is uncaring. What do we learn at the, at the very beginning of John's gospel? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. So, so it's not that God is uncaring. But passion here in the sense of think, think about the pagan gods of Zeus and Poseidon. I'm sure all of you had some, some point in your you're learning maybe in middle school or high school where you had to, to study the, the Greek gods. And one of the things you learn about the Greek gods is that they are very arbitrary and capricious. If they're just having a bad day, you know, Poseidon might just send down a lightning bolt on someone just, just because he's annoyed, okay? He's, he's arbitrary, capricious, impulsive. But what this is saying is that our God is not like that. Our God is consistent. He is good. He is everlasting. He doesn't have these arbitrary passions. Okay. So everlasting without body, parts, or passions. Of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. There it is. The maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, this word Trinity, it does not ever show up in the Bible. In fact, the doctrine of the Trinity was not really fleshed out until the third and fourth centuries. So someone well ask, well, where in the world does it come from? We'll look at four areas where we find our belief in the Trinity, in the New Testament, in history, in theology, and in experience. Let's begin with um, the New Testament. Does anybody need a Bible? Ellen, would you help maybe bring a couple of Bibles in case somebody needs a Bible? Raise your hand if you need a copy of the Bible. We're just going to look at some passages. Okay, so one, two. Ellen, maybe two. Anybody else? The first passage I want to look at comes from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 3. If you're using the classroom Bible, it's page 808. And what I want to look at here is who shows up at the baptism. Picking up at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Okay, so who, who shows up? Who are the characters here? What do we have? Okay, we got Jesus. Yes, that's the most obvious one. Come on, guys. 
Jesus, who else? John, we have John the Baptist. So we have Jesus here, John the Baptist, who else? Spirit shows up like what? Like a dove. So we've got the dove here. It's kind of hard to see, I'm sure, for you guys. And who else? Sorry? You got the sun, exactly. Jesus the sun. Yep, down there. Yes, and this voice from heaven. And we assume it's the Father because what does the voice say? It is my beloved Son. Well, who says Son? Well, but the Father. Yes, so this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So we've got John the Baptist, Jesus the Son, God the Father, a voice from heaven, and the Dove, Holy Spirit. All right, that's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Let's go to the other end. Let's go to the end of his ministry. After he has been crucified, raised from the dead, he's preparing to ascend to the Father. Turn to Matthew chapter 28, page 835. Jesus is about to leave his followers, and so he says to them, this is what you're supposed to do. He basically gives them their marching orders. Picking up at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Now remember that. That's going to be key for later on. That's hugely important. They worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, you guys are so shy, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Later in the New Testament, we have a Trinitarian greeting. Turn to page uh, 1014, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes this greeting. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the... God the... Father... In the sanctification of the, for the obedience to, and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Trinitarian greeting. One more. Trinitarian benediction. Turn to page 971. This will be very familiar to you when you hear it. Picking up at verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God, in love, the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And the grace of the Lord, the grace of the Lord, Jesus there you go, and the love of, and the fellowship of the, be with you all. So the New Testament we see is Trinitarian through and through. But our understanding of the Trinity also arises out of history. The first apostles were of what faith? They weren't Christian, we wouldn't have said initially. They were what? They were Jewish, Jewish men. All of them, Jewish men. Now, put on your thinking caps. If you were to say one of the main distinctions between the Jewish people and their understanding of God 
and the surrounding pagans, be they Greek pagans or Roman pagans with all of their gods, what is the major difference between the two, just from a bird's eye view about what they believe about God? They're monotheists. From a very early age, every Jewish boy and girl would have memorized what's known as the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That makes them totally unlike the pagans around them. In fact, sometimes the Romans and um, the Greeks, to sort of poke fun at the Jews, they would call them atheists because they only had one God. What's wrong with you people? But then a handful of Jewish men met Jesus. Now they were convinced that he was the Messiah, but as they went around with him, as they listened to him, as they watched him, as they heard the things that he said, they began to become convinced that he was something more than just the Messiah. More than just King David come again. Jesus, for example, forgave sins. Every faithful Jew knows that the only person who can forgive sins is God alone. Jesus claimed to be the judge of the world, though God is the judge of the world. In fact, it's that particular claim that brought the the, uh, case of blasphemy against Jesus because he was claiming to be the judge of the world. The disciples came to believe that Jesus was worthy of worship. I told you all to remember when we were there at the, the end of the gospel according to Matthew, They came to Jesus on the mountain and they worshiped him. Now, every Jewish person knows you don't worship anybody but God alone. Now, it was clear that Jesus was not the Father. He spoke to the Father, he prayed to the Father. And then later on, Jesus began to speak of someone else the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, the one we call the Holy Spirit, who is poured down the day of Pentecost. So, all of this is to say that. The the disciples' observation of Jesus, their experience of Jesus, compelled them to believe in the Trinity, the unfolding events of history, as they saw who Jesus was, what he claimed, what he did. And we add to this theology, that is the the, the study of God, the, the meditation on God, which reveals that our God is a triune God. The early church fathers who are pictured in this icon here, are, are, these are the leaders of the church, the, the first generation after the original apostles. So the original apostles went around, taught people about Jesus, but when they died, most of them were martyred. Then a, a new generation came up, a new generation of leaders, thinkers, writers, and these are what's known as the church fathers, although there were some women, but mostly men, church fathers. And they began to ponder all this. They wrestled with this question. How do we reconcile the unity of God, that is, God is one, we are monotheists, but how do we reconcile that with both the deity and the distinctness of Jesus? In other words, how are we supposed to believe that Jesus is divine on the one hand, but also distinct from the Father without committing ourselves to two gods? Do you see their problem? The unity of God has to be the starting point. We are monotheists. Again, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. But then what do you do with Jesus? Well, some said, okay, here's what we'll do. Jesus was divine. But in order to maintain one God, it must be that we have one God 
who is revealing himself in different modes. In the same way that I am both a husband to Ellen, a father to Andrew and Lily, and a brother to Robert, maybe that's what we have here. One God who's operating in three different modes. But this understanding of God came to be known, um, it is a, a heresy, the heresy of modalism. And it's a heresy because it denies that Jesus was distinct from the Father. Let me put it this way. If God is, is one God operating in three different modes, then who was talking to whom at Jesus' baptism? This is my beloved son. Thank you very much. I mean, who, what's that all about? So clearly, this can't be the solution to this whole uh, unity deity distinctness problem. Well, others said maybe Jesus wasn't quite divine. Maybe he was merely a a superior created being. You know, not quite God, but certainly more than a human being. Somewhere in between. Someone like um, a modern example, which would be a Superman or Gandalf the wizard. More than a human, not quite God. This would keep Jesus distinct from God the Father and allow us to maintain our belief that God is one. But this too was, came to be known as a heresy of the church, the heresy of Arianism, named for Arius, a powerful bishop of the fourth century who championed this idea. Arius was ultimately defeated by another bishop by the name of Athanasios or Athanasius, as we pronounce it in the West, who argued this. He said, if Jesus was just a superhuman creation of the Father, then what on earth were the disciples doing worshiping him? How are we going to make sense of that? That's a problem. It's idolatry to worship anyone or anything other than the one true God. Furthermore, how can Jesus forgive sins? How can he be the judge of the world? How can what he did on the cross have an effect on all of us if he is merely a creation of God rather than being God himself. To some degree or another, um, modern-day Mormons, so that would be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, to some degree, modern Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they tend toward Arianism. They don't follow everything that maybe that Arius um, championed, that, that bishop of the church, but but they they tend toward this kind of understanding of the Trinity. And so that's why we have traditionally, where we recognize other Christian denominations, we have traditionally looked at um, Jehovah's Witness and um, Mormons as a sect, distinct from Christianity. But if we simply think it through, if we take Jesus at his word, we recognize that we need to simultaneously affirm that Jesus was divine, and distinct from the Father while upholding the unity of God. And this is how we arrive at the classic Trinitarian understanding of God that's depicted in this. You probably have seen this symbol around somewhere. Maybe you didn't quite know what it was, was doing, but this is the Trinitarian understanding. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, but the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. I'm going to pause there. Questions? Okay, keep thinking. If you've got questions, we'll have time at the end. Fourthly, um, it, it is the experience of Christians throughout all the ages 
um, <clears throat> out of which the Trinity arises. I acknowledge the Trinity. It's difficult to explain. Again, great mystery of the church. Yet every time we pray, we enjoy access to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the classic definition of Christian prayer. It's prayer to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you start to pay attention to the prayers that we pray on Sunday mornings, many of them will follow this same kind of pattern, a pattern of prayer to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's an example. This is the collect. Again, college is the fancy word for prayer, a prayer to collect our thoughts as the body of, of believers. But here, here we go. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts to direct and rule us according to your will, to comfort us in all our afflictions, to defend us from all error, and to lead us into all truth through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This is also true of the Lord's Prayer. It is our Father who gives us daily bread. It is through the death of Jesus on the cross that we are able to be forgiven. And it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are led not into temptation, but into the way of God. This is how Christians experience the Trinity every time we worship. To the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I recognize that a lot of what we're talking about here is kind of up here, sort of brain stuff, like thinking this through. And you might be wondering, well, what, what, what is this? I mean, what does this have to do with down here? What does this have to do with my life Monday through Friday? And I'll say this. Recognizing that your God, that our God is a trinity of persons. It is, in a sense, a, a little teeny tiny community a rela- of relationship. You're created by a God of relationship for relationship. We were not meant to be on our own. Sometimes that relationship works out in marriage. Sometimes it doesn't. That's irrelevant. But we are to be in relationship with God and in relationship with each other. In a sense, that that is part of what is so insidious about this pandemic and and what has been so difficult. Many of you experience this at a visceral level. It, It has driven a wedge Uh, between our natural desire to connect, to be in fellowship, to be in community. But the Trinity is a reminder that you, again, were created by a God of relationships for relationships, by a God that is in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in order to be in community, first in relationship with God, but also in relationship with each other in the body of Christ. That's what the Holy Trinity calls us into, a holy community. And of course, we hope you find that community here at St. Philip's. Questions? It's a lot to ponder, a lot to ponder. All right, we've got, I don't know if we've got enough time to do that. Try that next week. Next week, what I'm gonna do is I wanna push you all out into a big circle and just give a chance you don't have to say much but just to introduce yourselves to each other um, since it is so hard for us to connect so we'll do that next week Um, no questions going once going twice okay let me pray for you let's pray
Heavenly Father, we come before you acknowledging that you are God and that we are not. And that in you there is a greatness and a vastness that is beyond human understanding. And yet in your great love for us, you have seen fit to reveal yourself to us. And for that, we thank you and we praise you. We ask, O Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, that you would pour into our hearts your Holy Spirit to help us grow in our understanding of you, to help us grow in our trust in you, to help us grow in our love for you and for those around us, to help us grow in our fruitfulness as we go our separate ways. Father, put your blessing on each of these, your sons and daughters, that they might be a blessing to others wherever they go this week, in their homes, their places of work, in the community. And bring us back, we pray, next week. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you all. And I'll see you all, God willing, next week.